So we are going to be jumping into our third week on our series on, that we call Letters. It's um, looking at the letters that Paul wrote from prison. So Paul, um, as, a, as a proclaimer of the gospel, was eventually put in prison by the Roman Empire. And uh, he, this was not a fun thing, but he used his time well. He didn't just sit around and say, well, I'm in prison. There's nothing more I can do. This is kind of the end game. Instead, he said, no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write. I'm going to encourage the churches. And essentially, the letter that he wrote primarily were to churches that he mostly started, mostly planted around the um, Mediterranean area. And so uh, the, the, the letters that he wrote were um, Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. And so we've looked at two of those letters so far. We're going to be looking at the next two today, and then um, we're going to divide uh, Ephesians into two weeks because it's so good. There's two separate things that we really want to focus on and look at in the book of Ephesians. But these letters that are addressed to these churches, they deal with all kinds of practical issues that any new church that's just starting out would be dealing with. But Paul is not just addressing some of the issues. He's, he's trying to remind them who they are. He's trying to make sure that like, hey, at the foundational level, do you understand who you are and who God is? He's sort of creating the this is us declaration in these letters. So the first week we looked at the book of Philippians and he kind of started out by, we kind of, we started out looking by how Paul is experiencing joy, even though he's in these dire situation of being in prison, he's in the middle of these really challenging circumstances. Um, and, and yet he says that he is experiencing joy. And we looked at how we can all experience joy, even in the middle of the circumstances where we feel like, I don't really want to be here right now. This isn't really where I want to be. And we may be praying that God would deliver us from these circumstances, but sometimes God wants to work in the middle of those circumstances to deliver us in the midst of them, to use them to advance his kingdom and the presence of Christ, not just in the world, but but in yourself, in your own life, so that you may experience abundant joy. So then last week we looked at um, the letter to Philemon. Last week we talked about that letter, which is the shortest letter that Paul wrote, but it's also an extremely explosive letter that Paul wrote because he's, he wrote it to Philemon in order to call him out to live out this radical social implications of a personal decision that he made to follow Jesus. Paul calls Philemon to sort of upset the power structure that existed in the Roman world specifically the power structure between masters and slaves. But in that, Paul kind of says like, hey, any power structure that exists, whether it's slave and free, man, woman, whatever, um, power structures exist between ethnicities or nations. Paul's saying because Jesus levels the playing field, Because we are a new humanity in Jesus. When people enter into the family of God, all of those power structures are upended. All of them should be put to the side. No longer should some people have supremacy over other people. No longer should some people receive certain privileges that other people aren't entitled to. Because in Jesus, none of that structure makes any sense anymore. Because At the foot of the cross, we are all forgiven. We're all sinners and we're all forgiven. And so we are all equal. So Paul encourages Philemon and he encourages us to radically embrace those at every level of power structures as equals, which is crazy. 
Now, today we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians, which was sent to the church in Colossia. Now, does anybody remember whose house this church meets at? Talked about it last week. This letter and another letter was carried by a slave named Onesimus. And so the church was meeting at Philemon, uh, Philemon's house. So Philemon was this rich, wealthy Roman in Colossia who opened his house for the church to meet there. So when Paul says, sends this letter to the Colossians, I talked about how last week how Onesimus had this one letter in his hand. The runaway slave had this one letter in his hand to give to Philemon and say, please don't kill me, read this before. But there was a second letter that he was carrying. And it was to the entire church. It was to the church, the Colossian church. So this is the letter that we're looking at today. Paul hadn't actually started this church. He had actually never visited there. This church was actually led by a guy named Epaphras. And it was kind of a cool thing because Epaphras was born and raised in Colossia. Epaphras basically started a church in his hometown. Now, for those of you who have moved away from home, imagine having to go back to home and starting a church there. That's exactly what he did. And so while Paul was in prison, Epaphras had actually traveled out to go see Paul, and they had talked together. They had this opportunity. He had an opportunity to share with Paul, hey, these are some of the challenges and pressures that we're facing in the Colossian church. These are some of the things that are tempting our people to turn away from Jesus. Now, one of the cultural pressures um, that, the, uh, that the church in, Col- uh, in Colossia was experiencing was um, sort of this, like, this... Uh, this mystical polytheism. And if you don't know what polytheism, it's basically this idea that there are many gods. Poly meaning many and theism meaning God. There are many divinities. And so this was this really big pressure for the church at the time. Now to really understand why this was such a big deal and why, was, why it was tempting for the church at the time, it's important to understand that none of these Christians that are in this church actually grew up in the church This was like the first church in history. These are the beginning of the churches. So there's no sort of Sunday school that you went to from when you were two and you learned all of the different things. They're all brand new. So like some of you guys who didn't grow up in the church but have now found uh, found Jesus and are following Jesus, um, they too, they didn't grow up in Sunday school. They didn't grow up reading the Bible. They didn't grow up learning the Christian lingo. They didn't know any of those things. They didn't know like potluck meant you brought a meal to share. They didn't know that like fellowship meant hang out with people. Um, They didn't know that when you got washed in the blood, that really wasn't a literal bloodbath, right? That was a theoretical, like a, like a, like a, um, metaphor, thank you. Um, they didn't know uh, what seeing fruit in somebody's life meant. They didn't know any of these things. So most of these new Christians didn't grow up with this understanding of one true God. What they grew up with was worshiping different Greek and Roman gods. 
And each of these Greek and Roman gods had sort of a different area of human life that they oversaw. There was the god of fertility and the god of the harvest. And there was the sun gods and the god of war and the god of sea and the god of wine. Um, So for many people in that culture, they didn't have a, a problem sort of accepting Jesus as another god. Oh, he, Jesus, is the god of love or whatever. For them, they just sort of brought Jesus into the fold of all of these different gods. There was really, for them, nothing unique about Jesus. It was just add him to the pack. Like, why can't we worship Jesus also? That also sounds like a good idea. Now, for many of us, that feels very foreign. Like, maybe there's one or two of us that grew up with some sort of connection to a Hindu religion. And so there's some sort of ideas of that in play. But for most of us, that's not the case. This idea of multiple gods over multiple areas of life feels very foreign. But I do think there is a modern-day parallel to this. And it is really the idea that there are many paths to God. In our culture, it sounds like this. If Jesus works for you, that's totally awesome. But Jesus is just one of many ways. He's he's not really the only way. There's lots of ways to experience God. There's lots of different religious philosophies, spiritual practices, beliefs, worldviews. You can embrace any of them, and you wind up getting to the same place. The words in different religions, they sound different, but it's really all saying the same thing. There's nothing unique about Jesus. He's just one of the many ways to God. And so you can add Jesus to the list of possibilities of how to be spiritual and how to be religious. Now, the problem with this is that if you look closely at different spiritual practices or religions, the way that they describe the ultimate goals of their religion or their spiritual practices um, are, are very different. The end game is different. The, the ways that you play that game are different. And the God over that religion is different. Who God is is described differently. They really aren't the same thing. Now, I used to describe this um, to, to some of my students that would, would come to me with this of like, hey, don't all paths just lead to the same God? Aren't we just using different words? Isn't it really all the same God? This is what I used to tell them. I'd say, let's say I wanted to tell you a story about Zach. Now, those of you who don't know, that's Zach over there. He's my husband. He was leading worship. I wanted to tell you a story about Zach. Now, I, you, because I say, hey, let me tell you the story about my friend Zach. You assume that I'm talking about my husband, that we're talking about the same person, uh, this guy who leads worship that I am married to. So I start to tell you that Zach lives in Maryland, and you say, yes, I, I know this. I know this about you and your husband. And you're like, yep, I know that. And I say, yeah, and Zach, he's so funny, and he could talk to anyone, and he loves to give hugs. And you'd be like, yep, that's the Zach that I know. Now, those of you who don't know him, you're just going to have to trust me on this analogy. You're going to say, yep, that's who I know. That's perfect. And I'm, then I'm going to start telling you that Zach started law school last year, and he's crushing it. And you start to wonder, like, wait a second. Law, I didn't know that about Zach. Like, law school? I knew he was a climbing instructor, but, like, law school? Is that, is that really what we're doing? And I'm like, yeah, 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 law school. And then the other night, he went out um, to a concert with his girlfriend, and they, like, loved it, and it was so fun. And then you start queuing in, like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Who are we talking about? 
Like we're describing different people here. There are attributes and characteristics about this person that are really not lining up. And so logically in your brain, you begin to think, we're talking about different people. We must be talking about two different Zachs. Now, this happens all the time when we're talking about people and we're fine with it and we follow this logic and it's great. But for some reason, when we start talking about gods and religion, we make these like mental gymnastics to jump over hoops of things that don't align. What we do in culture is we say, oh, law school, that must just be a different type of wording or, or um, description of like climbing instructor. Those are just different. And girlfriend, that just must be a different word for wife, like same thing, but just different. We don't think about it. We just assume, no, 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 we're just using different words. We're not jumping to the correct conclusion that we're actually talking about different people, different gods, different systems. They are not interchangeable. Eventually, we get to this point where we have to admit that we're describing something totally different. Who Jesus is and how he has set up, how he is set apart and how he's distinct from other gods and paths and practices, that is real. But if you try to claim the uniqueness of Jesus, that he's actually different from other gods and other paths and other religions, sometimes what happens is you would get culturally labeled as an elitist, as arrogant, as maybe even hateful towards other people. There's a lot of pressure in our culture currently to kind of succumb to the crowd and just say, yep, they're all the same. We're all going to end up at the same place. It's all the same thing. Now, this is exactly what Paul is trying to address in the beginning of his letter to the Colossians. It's this cultural pressure to give in to the view that Jesus is just one God among many. Paul knows that if that happens, though, it actually will diminish the Colossians' ability to be devoted to Jesus and, to, and, and, and diminish their radical, the radical call that Jesus has on their lives. So Paul begins his letter by giving thanks. He gives thanks to their faithfulness to Jesus, and he gives thanks to how they have lived out Jesus' command to love God and, and love their neighbor. He says, hey, you're doing great at this loving thing. Two thumbs up. And then he prays for them. And we're going to look more at the prayers that, G that, that Paul uh, says at the beginning of his letters because they're super important in giving us a clue about the main point and focus of the letters of, of what we're supposed to see in the letter. We're going to look at more of that next week. Um, but what Paul prays for is he prays for their, them to grow in wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is what Paul prays for. And, and so this is really the focus of his letter that they would grow in their wisdom and spiritual understanding. And that's what Paul wants most to see happen in the lives of the Colossians. He wants them to grow in their wisdom and spiritual understanding about Jesus. And if they did, if they really knew who Jesus was, if it could be abundantly clear to them that Jesus is unique and he's different, that he truly deserves their devotion— it would encourage them to walk in this radical call that Jesus has on their lives. 
So to help them to see that, uh, Paul actually places this poem at the beginning of his letter. And some scholars believe that it was probably one of the earliest poems or hymns that the Christian churches sang. And so it's, it's really a special, special text. It's entirely focused on Jesus. And we're going to read the whole thing together, and then we're going to kind of unpack it a bit. So it's in the first chapter of Colossians in um, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, there's a lot to unpack there about who Jesus is and how he's different from anyone else, person or God. So let's see if we can do this in a way that's like helpful and understandable So Paul describes Jesus' uniqueness in three ways. We're going to look at three different ways that he describes him as unique. The first one is that Jesus is unique in his relationship to God. Right at the beginning, Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Paul's saying that Jesus alone reveals the very nature and character of God. Both are perfectly displayed in Jesus. He's saying that when you look at Jesus, you discover what the invisible God is like. Now, let me back up for a second. For those of you who did grow up in Sunday school, we're going to have a little test. Ten commandments. You ready? What is the first commandment? Yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart. What's the second commandment? Oh, wait, in the, in the, in the Ten Commandments. So that's shrunk. All the law and the prophets get shrunk to that. The first one, yeah, do not have any other gods before me. The second one is do not create any images. Do not create any images of God and do not worship them. So God tells them as one of the big number two, don't create images of God for the sake of worship. Now, I don't think that this whole don't create images means that you can't draw a picture of God. Like my children have written books about God and they have done tons of pictures about him and I'm not like tearing them up thinking, no, you can't do this. God told us no images of God. No, I think what it's really talking about is no images that we're we're putting forward for the sake of worship. That we're not saying that this image holds the fullness of who God is. Because here's what happens. Sometimes my kids draw a picture of of God and he's smiling. He's this loving God that just, I created everything. And that's really good. That is a part of God's character. The problem is, is that that actually totally doesn't encapsulate the fullness of God. Because he also is very sad about the broken state of this world. He is grieved and angry about injustice. But if you were to draw a picture of God and he had a frowny face, that also would not show the fullness of who God's character is. 
because he's also extremely loving and merciful and compassionate and joyous, right? So any image, any human image that we create that says this is what God's character is, is incomplete. And yet here in this poem, what Paul is saying is that Jesus was the fullness of the image of God. He created something that allowed us to experience the invisible God in person. That we can look to Jesus and say, that was truly God. That was him in all of his fullness. The Greek word that's used here is actually pleorum. Plethorum? I'm not real good at Greek. Somebody else have to pronounce that for me. But what I do know is I can read the dictionary. And what the dictionary does tell me is it's, it's this word that's saying that all of the attributes of God are present in Jesus. In Jesus, we don't see just some of the attributes of God or one-third of the attributes of God, but we see all of the attributes of God. In other words, when you see Jesus, when you read about him in Scripture, when you interacted with him, when you get to know him, you have seen, you have interacted, and you know God. Now, this gets into the idea of the Trinity, that there is one God, but he's manifested in three persons, God the Father, the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the Trinity is a really difficult thing to understand um, and, and to get your mind around. In fact, trying to understand it was actually the main point of the Council of Nicaea in, in 325, if you need to know any Jeopardy trivia anytime. Um, they used this word to describe the Trinity. It was homoousias. And it was to describe this trinity, and what it refers to is the substance of God. The basic concept was that each person of the trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were of one substance. They were this homoousias. They were the same oneness. They existed in this indivisible, loving community with each other. That they were so interconnected that they were the same. And yet, at the same time, they were manifested in these three different personhoods. The whole personhood of the Trinity, we get to interact with Jesus. And Jesus isn't like this one part of God. He's the fullness of God. He's the same substance. He's, he's all of God, but still just one personhood. It's very complicated, but I have a little bit of analogy to help you. Does anybody like pizza? Okay, good. We love pizza. Okay, so when you get a pizza, the best pizzas, the ones that are the most well-made, are the ones that are, have the toppings distributed evenly across the pizza, right? So that in every slice, there's no slice that's better than any other slice. All of the, of the ingredients are evenly distributed. There's no extra sauce pools. There's no lack of cheese in one part. There's none of this like half cheese, half pepperoni. No, the whole thing, all of the things, right? So when you look at the pizza, every piece is evenly distributed. Every piece is good. So if you were to take a piece of that pizza and you were to eat it, you would have the full attributes of the whole pizza in that one slice. You would know what the whole thing was like just from that one slice, and you would eat and devour that one slice, and you would say, I've experienced all of that pizza, like like, I haven't been shortchanged at all. It's all there, and I had it in my slice. But there is no arguing that that one slice of pizza is a whole pizza. No one would look at a slice of pizza, then you brought it to them, and you said, hey, I brought you a whole pizza. And you're like, no, 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 that is a slice. The whole pizza is circular or maybe square, 
but that is a triangle. It is not the whole pizza. We know the difference, right? This is the Trinity. Now, I know that, that it's not totally the Trinity and the analogy totally falls apart in some different places. But the whole idea is that when you experience Jesus, you experience the fullness of God. God didn't say, hey, I have to send someone down to earth to like, do some grunt work. So let's find like, the lesser being to go down to earth. Let's find the piece of pizza that the cheese has fallen off and we'll give them that. No, God says, I want to give you the fullness of myself. So I send my son who has the full attributes of God. Everything is re- of God is represented in Jesus. Now, this is really, really cool because if you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God. If you've experienced Jesus, you've experienced God. In no other religion does the fullness of God Whatever their divine entity is. In no other religion does the fullness of God come to earth. God might impart a special wisdom about himself to a special person like in Buddhism or Islam. Part of God might temporarily exist on earth by possessing another person as in Hinduism. The spirit that is, um, the spirit that is one of many sons of God might come to earth as in Mormonism. But only in Christianity do we see the fullness of God come to earth. And the great thing is that that the more that we look at Jesus, the more that we realize how utterly sacrificial and self-giving and loving God is, we can begin to see who he is. How he would do anything, including lay down his own life just to be in a relationship with us. If you've ever had like grunt work to do, you always send the lesser being. But not God. He says, no, I'm gonna, I love you so much. I'm going to send the fullness of myself to dwell among you, to lay down my life, all so that I can be with you. He wants all of himself to come to earth to be with us. So the other way that Paul says that Jesus is unique is in his relationship with creation. Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in all things hold together. Now when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, it's a really important phrase. In Paul's day, the the firstborn was the one who got the wealth of the father. The firstborn got all of the status and the standing and the power of the father. But Paul doesn't say that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. He says that Jesus was the firstborn over all creation. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus has the power and the status and the standing of the father. He's equal, but he himself wasn't created. He wasn't the firstborn of creation. He was over all creation. There wasn't a time when Jesus didn't exist. He's eternal. He's beginning less. Jesus is not the created. He is the creator. You can't separate Jesus from God. They, they did this whole creation thing together. But also, Paul says, That Jesus didn't create all the things, just create all the things. He was the thing that all the things were created for. And that Jesus is the one who holds all of those things together. Which means that Jesus, 
is Lord over all creation. And without him sustaining the whole world, things would start to fall apart. Jesus is the one who holds all of creation together, and he keeps it from falling apart. He's the one who holds us together, and he keeps us from falling apart. Now, in no other religion does God, or a divine entity, hold the things together. Instead, it's our good or bad actions of human effort that determine whether things fall apart or things get put back together. Why did the rain come? Why didn't the rain come? Because you didn't make the right offerings. Why did the person get sick and die? Because they did something bad, and what goes around comes around. Why why were you blessed with a lot of money? Because you worked hard for it. In other religions, it's always about what you can do and how your efforts to try harder to be better will result in you being held together and the world around you being held together. But in Jesus, it's totally different. In Jesus, it's all about what he has already done for us, that he's already done everything to hold our worlds together. He's already done everything, and he is the one that sustains the world. He's the one that brings transformation and redemption. It isn't about what you and I can do. It's about what Jesus has already done for you and for all of creation. Now, let me give you this real example of how this plays out. Now, I know that um, probably all of us struggle feeling like our worlds are falling apart, right? That this is a feeling that we all have. Please say yes, because then I don't feel alone. Okay, great. So, um, so all of us struggle with this. And because it's Mother's Day, I'm going to focus in on the falling apart world of a mother. But I'm sure that any parent and any other person, actually, whether you're a mother or not, you can relate to this scenario. Um, in the normal everyday stuff, sometimes it feels like your world is falling apart. If I'm honest, I try really hard to be an awesome mom. I want to take the podium and get the gold medal for momdom. And instead, I often find myself having to take a million timeouts and lock myself behind a door and turn the sink in the bathroom on so that no one can hear the muffled cries of what a mess I feel like sometimes this whole thing is, and how really I'd just rather run away on some days. And I try really hard to be patient and to keep it all together and to stay calm and handle their tantrums with finesse, just like that poem that we read at the beginning. But instead, what I actually find is I find myself throwing a bigger tantrum than they throw, with about eight times more drama than theirs. Um, I strive really hard to have a clue about what I'm supposed to be doing. But the truth is that oftentimes my best efforts have led me to my kid hating me and me crawling into bed feeling like I've got it wrong when everybody else has figured it out. As a parent in those moments, I take comfort I take comfort in the fact that even though it feels like my world is falling apart, that the solution isn't to try harder to be better. That the solution is to run to Jesus, who's the only one who can hold this whole thing together. That Jesus is the one who's created me. He's the one who's created you. He's the one who's created the little one that you are in turmoil with. And the truth is that Jesus created this whole world for himself. He's created all these people to glorify him. 
And he's the one who holds this whole thing together, which means that I don't have to take gold. I don't have to try to measure up and to make it all happen because Jesus came down and he measures you and he measures me as good enough and as worthy enough and as loved enough, not because I've done anything right, but because of Jesus. (laughs) Because Jesus is the one who created all the things and sustains all the things and reconciles all the things. And so I can rest in that. There's a writer, her name's Ann Voskamp, and she says this. She says that Jesus is the one that holds you when everything else falls apart and whispers that everything is really falling together. There's another way that Jesus is unique. He's unique in his relationship with the church. Paul also says, um, Paul says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, when Paul calls Jesus the head of the church, the word that he's using is actually referring to Jesus' role as the source of the church. In the similar way that we refer to um, a river having a head, it has a source. Jesus is the one who is the source of all that we do, all that we're, we're trying to accomplish. This means that the source of our connection with God isn't church. It's not Clarksburg Church. The source of our connection with God isn't the pastor. It's not me. It's not the Pope. (laughs) It isn't a building. You don't have to go to a specific temple to really experience God. You don't have to do particular sacraments, like take communion or be baptized or do particular ritual prayers or recite specific words to connect with God. Your connection to God isn't in a method or a program, but it's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus himself is is the connection point. It's the distribution point of our connection with God. Those who want more of God, all they have to do is go to Jesus. So Paul continues. He says that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul is saying that not only is Jesus the firstborn over all creation, that there were things that were created by, that, that Jesus created all things and, and he, they were created for Jesus, but also that he was the firstborn from among the dead. This is a strange phrase. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus, who created the world in the first place, is also the one who is recreating it through death and resurrection. That when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He came back to life in all of his fullness that death could not hold him. Like a womb cannot hold a child for any more than 10 months. Death could not hold him. And so he was the firstborn from among the dead. In him, he creates a way for us all to receive life after death in the same way that he did. Because of Jesus' blood on the cross, death can no longer hold us either. That those who have said yes to Jesus have made peace with God, so death isn't the end. And at the appointed time, we too are going to be born into a new life with him. And he's already begun to create this new humanity and this this new creation And it starts with his church. It starts with his body. So Paul describes this good news this way. He says that once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. 
But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This is unheard of. That a God would sacrifice himself, the best of himself, the fullness of himself, to be reunited with the, the objects of his creation. That he would be in existence to hold us together. That the fullness of God would come to the earth that he created so that those who messed everything up and couldn't keep the world together might be held together and be remade by Jesus dying and redeeming every aspect of human life, including death, so that we could be held together and be made right to be with this God. This is unheard of. This is unique about Jesus. Now, your entire, now our entire focus on looking at this one small passage in um, Colossians was to see how Jesus is unique from all the other religious figures and all the other gods and all the other spiritual practices. And I know that we only just scratched the surface. But when we talk about Jesus, it's clear that we aren't just referring to any other religion by just another name. Jesus is unique. And Jesus is altogether different. And what Paul is praying for, for the Colossians, I also pray for you, that you would also grow in your spiritual knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is so that you can be convinced that Jesus truly deserves your devotion. And he, he truly deserves like us walking in this radical call that Jesus has on our lives. Now, here's the deal. We're all from different places, and we're at different places in this journey as we follow Jesus. But unless you are convinced that Jesus is unique, that he's different, there will always be this place in you that sort of stops short of following him in all the fullness, that stops short of allowing him and his truth to rule in all of the public and private places of your life. And so... When, when Paul is, is finishing this letter, as he goes through the rest of this letter, Paul actually brings up some specific areas where this matters. That, that if you truly understand that Jesus is unique, that Jesus is different, it will change how you deal with all of society. He brings up again how it will change the way that you interact with societal structures and power structures that you live among. He says it'll change the way your households are run. He says it will change every corner of your life. And that doesn't mean that if you're still wrestling with the idea that, that maybe Jesus is just one of the many ways or many paths that lead to the same place. I'm not saying that you in this moment, lying in the sand, you have to jump ship from this journey. No, no, no. I want you to continue to press in. I want, I want to encourage you to ask the questions. How is this really different? How is Jesus really unique? Is it really true that these things are incompatible? Is it really true that we have to define Jesus as the only way, the only truth, and the only life? And I want to encourage you to grow in your understanding of that. Ultimately, the question is, do you really believe that he is who he said that he was? And, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you have 
increased knowledge and spiritual wisdom about who Jesus is. I want to I pray for those of you who have never really made that decision, who, who aren't sure where you're at. I want to pray that, that you would come to a place where you say, yes, I want to pursue this. I want to dig into this more. And I also want to pray for those of you who made a decision a long time ago to follow Jesus, but maybe in the cultural pressure to just kind of say, hey, no, everything, it's kind of all the same path. I want to pray for courage and conviction. Not that, now, courage and conviction, real quick, doesn't mean that you storm the gates of some other um, uh, religious institution and you say, you're all wrong. This is not what I'm asking you to do. (laughs) I'm asking you to have courage and conviction in your own heart to first begin to look at your own life of, okay, where are the places that, I, that my own conviction has led me to not live out fully what Jesus has called me to, which includes loving people who are of completely different belief systems, completely different practices, to being in relationship with them, and not in relationship like, hey, I know you, hey, well, no, but like, let's sit down and let's encourage one another. Can I take care of your kids? Can I come over for coffee? Will you come over for dinner? What does it look like for us to engage in those types of relationships with people who have different spiritual practices? And actually, I think that one of the reasons we all think that they're the same thing is because we don't really know anyone who is from these other faith systems. And so we're just like, oh, yeah, it's all the same. It's fine. Just let's not talk about it. No. We need to engage and engage deeply with love and compassion and respect as we listen to each other. And find greater conviction that Jesus really is the way, he's the truth, and the life. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that you are unique. I thank you for the ways that we don't have to hold the world together, but you hold it together for us. It's not about the ways that we have to do something, but but what you have done for us. I thank you that, that you are a God who, in all of your fullness, came down to earth. To, be recon- to have us be reconciled to you. Father God, I thank you that you have this church body, that we get the source of our life and our being and our love, our ability to connect with others through you. And so, Father God, would you just um, speak to us? Would you, um, would you help us grow in our knowledge and our love of you? Father more than, more than any of the other things, this is the thing that, that changes us when we are fully devoted to you, when we see you clearly, because when we see Jesus, we see you. And so, Father God, would you just reveal yourself to us where we have a greater understanding of how awesome and amazing you are. So, Father God, we pray all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.